tēnā koutou katoa, kua raurika mai nei tēnei rā, ki te whakarongo ki tēnei kōrero e pāna ki te reo Māori. Ngā mehi anō hoki ki ngai tu ahuriri, ki a ngai tahu anō hoki nō rātou te mana whenua o tēnei rohe. Koe anō hurinoa i te whare nei tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome to Embracing Te Reo, and my name is Jeanette King, I'm Ngāti Pākeha, and I'd like to introduce our three speakers today. We are missing Paulette Tamati Aleph, who can't make it today, but she's been replaced by Hannah O'Regan. So, Hannah is Kāti Raki Āmua, Kāti Rua Hiki Hiki, Kā Kaitu Ahuriri, Kāti Waiwai, and General Manager of Oranga at Tirunanga o Ngaitahu. She's also an author of many children's books in Te Reo Māori and also poetry in Te Reo Māori, and also one of the instigators of the Kotahi Mano Kaika Māori Language Revitalisation Plan for Ngaitahu. So please welcome Hannah O'Regan. And from up north, from uh, the Auckland area, we have Hemi Kelly, Ngāti Maniapoto, Ngāti Tahu, not Ngāi Tahu, uh, Ngāti Whaua, uh, who's a lecturer in Te Reo Māori at AUT, um, and also the author of this book, Māori Word A Day. So please welcome Hemi. And at the far end, we have Miriama Kamo, who, of course, um, you'll know as a broadcast journalist uh, who is on the Current Affairs programme Sunday and Marae on TV NZ1, and is also um, an author of a wonderful children's book um, in both English and Māori, The Stars of Matariki. So please welcome Miriama. So the format is we're going to have a bit of a conversation on the stage about um, te reo Māori, and we will have some time at the end for our questions from the audience, so please save those up. So thank you very much. Um, I wanted to start with talking about the fact that um, te reo Māori seems to be in the headlines a lot in the last year or so, and there seems to be a lot happening with it. I wonder whether we're entering a new phase with te reo Māori. And so I'm going to ask Hannah first, because you've been involved for um, a long time. The Ngaitahu revitalisation strategy has been going 18 years, since the year 2000. What are your, your perspectives of where we are with Te Reo? Oh, kia ora, kamahi huki kia koe, Jeanette. Look, I think it's fantastic that it's still in the headlines. I think the moment that we lose sight of Te Reo and the importance of it and the need to carry on driving the revitalisation, with all the passion that we've seen over the last 30 plus years, then, you know, we're doing something wrong. So the fact that it is still the topic of conversation, that it's at the forefront of people's minds and that people are debating on both sides still is a positive thing. I'm not put off by the fact that, you know, we, we haven't necessarily reached the enlightenment Across the, across the nation in terms of a, a, an overall acceptance of the value of te reo. But the fact that we seem to be still making those really important gains, I mean, I, I think we are at a time where we have taken another step up. I listened to the, to the Prime Minister uh, being interviewed um, in, at 
on breakfast TV, the reporter started off doing a mihi to the a Pākehā reporter doing a mihi in Māori to the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister then replied in Māori, and I'm thinking, hallelujah, we're there. <laughs> so I think, you know, that would not have even been on the books uh, yeah. a little while ago. And so that normalisation across the radio, across TV, within our communities, you know, it is a step up. But the fact that it's still being spoken about, it's still being debated, I think it's really a sign that we have, we are continuing um, keep their akafakamua to move forward, to face forward. Mm. Emmy, you, you're from up North Island, so what is it all the same up there? Things are uh, really taking off? Yeah, um, what we're witnessing well, where I work in Auckland at AUT, we've just seen this growth in people wanting to learn, people taking an interest in te reo Māori. I agree with Hannah, I think there's this social shift um, and attitude towards te reo Māori that's happening, and it's been happening for, for a couple of years now. Uh, and it's really due to, uh, I suppose, the initiatives that have been put in place over the last three, four decades, and we're starting to see the fruition of all those efforts come into play. Uh, and I suppose we can all acknowledge that, um, that shift that's happening at the moment. We've seen a growth in uh, people enrolling into our courses at AUT, and I know that's not just at AUT, but that's happening across the country. So definitely, there is this shift that's happening which is exciting. And Miriama, you're in the broadcasting arena, so you're mixing with a whole lot of different sorts of people as well. What's happening? Well, so, you know, we've seen <clears throat> uh, people like, you know, my Parker colleagues, Jack Tame and uh, Guy Nesbin are doing great things at TVNZ and uh, <clears throat> at RNZ, excuse me. So, there, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff happening in broadcasting and, um, and it just makes... I think the broadcasting um, arena at the moment more aware of what needs to be done and just the little steps that can be taken. So putting Tohu Tor um, into um, our broadcast at TVNZ has been a, a recent step. Um, there's still definitely a lot of goodwill at the moment, uh, but, I, but, but not so much that we can rest assured that you know we're out of the woods because we're not. We've gone from severely endangered to endangered, I think it is, um, from the UN. So there's still a lot of work to be done. And, the, I think the trick at the moment is to capitalise on the goodwill that we have. So what are some of the things that... Um, have, have you got ideas about how we could capitalise it? You were telling well, us... The, the two biggest things I'd love to see happen is um, that we teach um, our history um, in schools. And I think, you know, once we can, as a nation, own our history together and not feel guilt about it, but just understand the things that we got terribly wrong and the things that we did really right, and, uh, and understand who we are now as two peoples living together, as well as, as well as all the other people that are coming into the country too. Um, as long as we can understand who we are in our historical perspective, I think that really sets a really good um, foundation for te reo and people wanting them to kōrero, uh, Māori. Um, and the other thing is just understanding, um, there's actually a few things, but the other thing is really, <laughs> is pronunciation of um, te reo and really trying to get that right. So, you know, I think um, for me, I love to hear people trying. And if you get it wrong, that's good. You're trying. Um, and so your heart's in the right place. And um, in this country where we have um, te reo as a, an official language, we should be owning it. We should want it and want to speak it. So um, a good start is te reo, uh, sorry, is pronunciation. And for me, it's, it's even more important because having a Maori name, if you don't pronounce my name correctly, it's not really my name. It's some name, but it's not my name. Um, so that's a really important one for me. I think it's 
also one of them is think about things that we can progress and mm. that, will, that will help us turn our attentions and take a, help us take that next step with the language. I absolutely agree with Miriama, you know, some things as basic as making the effort to pronounce Māori correctly, uh, to promote the language as a normal language, a normal part of our, our community. I also think in New Zealand we need to we need to get over a little bit of this fear factor that we have around bilingualism and multilingualism. Um, we're still very much, very much caught up in, I think, a historical narrative of um, that there that the one language is right, and that, well, especially if it's um, an indigenous language. Uh, then that is seen to compromise the ability and negatively impact your ability on that ma on the majority language, which is not. We now know we've got so much evidence all around the world that says you know that you enhance the cognitive ability of a child if you raise that child in two languages. It has multiple uh, impact, multiple positive effects, and so actually taking that next step within our culture of discussion within our society around, hey, let's go that extra mile and promote two languages. It's actually, it doesn't matter what that language is. Mm. Bilingualism is of incredible benefit to our society, to, but to our children. If that language is also the language that is connected to our history, to our identity, to we, who we are as a nation, this place in the world, then that's compounded. The positive impact is compounded. So I think it is really important that that's another, that we look at both promoting bilingualism and multilingualism, promote the pronunciation. My, I was just saying before, my boy um, broke his leg a couple of weeks ago and in hospital this time. So last time he was in the hospital, which he's fine, but last time he was in hospital, you know, I met the, met the ambulance at the A&E and he had been knocked out. There was one person that's, that pronounced his name correctly, and that was a doctor. And I forgot about my son because I was saying, wow, listen to this doctor, the first time anyone's actually made an effort to pronounce his name. I wrote to the hospital to congratulate them on this doctor. I mean, I was also paying attention to my son. Um, but I, it, was, it was so profound for me that somebody had actually, the first time he was 10, first time anyone had made that effort. This time, two weeks ago, Again, I was worried about my son, but nearly everybody, every nurse, every doctor, everyone that came in was able to pronounce his name. And I just think I could not help but be filled with pride at the effort that people had made to do something as simple as that. But the impact that that had on him when he was 10, he decided he wanted to be a doctor when he grew up. And you know, was that kind? I don't know if that's still the case, but <laughs> after the broken leg, there might be a few other things that aren't going to happen. <laughs> so, I th yeah, I think it's really important to know that those things have impact and make an incredible difference to the way people feel about themselves and their place in our community. Yeah. With the social shift that's happening at the moment, I think there's a lot of people on the periphery that are looking in at what's happening and they're seeing this movement that's happening in our country and they're saying, this is really exciting and I want to be involved, but they're not quite sure how to get involved. And maybe they don't have the confidence in themselves to take that first step. So I think we need to continue creating and promoting the real, creating this warm, inviting space and letting people know that this language is our language. As New Zealanders, this is our language, isn't our language and, and really we're not that far removed from the language regardless of our knowledge of the real. It's in our people's names, it's in our places, place names, it's in our history. And so regardless of our own 
connection to the language, we're really not that far removed from the reo as New Zealanders. And so promoting the language, making people aware that this is our language and creating that warm, inviting space so that people have the confidence to take that first step and engage mm. with the reo. One of the funny things I've heard is, you know, a couple of racist remarks, but they're pronouncing Māori correctly and, and <laughs> don't, don't even really realise it. And I want to hit them and hug them at the same time. <laughs> Oh, that, it's interesting, though, about the change in attitudes because that's leading, I guess, to the you know um, some of this. But um, as a Pākehā, sometimes other Pākehā come and say to me, oh, I'm a little bit um, scared about learning te reo. Is this for me? Am I going to be seen as, you know, sort of taking that extra step as a coloniser and, and colonising the language as well or, or so on? But you seem to be indicating that, you know, that there's a lot more acceptance. Oh, yeah. Mm. When I travel overseas, I, I take it upon myself. You know, I'm not that good necessarily, depending on where I go, but I, I think it's a sign of respect to respect of the language, the people, the history, the place, um, to do whatever I can to, to try and pronounce things properly. Um, I don't go there and think, I'm a Pākehā, therefore when I'm in Thailand, I'm not going to make the effort because that would be tokenistic or belittling in some way. I've, I think absolutely the opposite. And, and the same goes here, I, I don't see, I can't even comprehend a negative reaction to someone trying, making the effort to pronounce Māori correctly, to learn it, to speak it, to use it. In my view, every person who normalises te reo and uses te reo in our country um, is, is actually showing not just respect, but doing their bit to make sure that this important part of our heritage is still around. And my children will benefit. My nieces and nephews will benefit where they hear that their heritage language is being upheld and reflected back to them by our society. That, that's beyond cool. That's just, it's empowering. Mm. And we, our kids, our children, our mokopuna, have not necessarily benefited from that for a long time. So it's about time we do it. So, yeah. Get, get all your relations. Go, get, go and grab them and get them all doing it because I think that it is the right time. Yeah. We are really in the right time. Yeah. A number of... The dream park out that can call it all Māori. You know, it's awesome. You know, it does really help all of us. as yeah. And there are some... In the, in the you know in the media radio television there's some key individuals who are who are Pākehā, who are promoting the real like Jennifer Ward Leland Jack Tame and and others uh, who are uh, I suppose setting an example for others to follow yeah. um, but and it kind of has implications also for our identity as New Zealanders doesn't it um, it becomes a really important part for everybody it's not you know, so yeah it, I'm also interested, though, what you're saying about attitudes, though, Hannah, because, um, yeah, these have a really, really important effect on what, you know, people think about themselves and so on. So, um, yeah. I think the attitudes... Uh, so we've talked already, I think, about attitude shift and that attitude shift has been positive. We're still not quite over the line um, and you only need to read some of the comments in media um, to... Mm, to support the idea that we're not actually all over the line yet. Um, but they've got more positive, haven't they? Well, they and have. Even you just saying taking on te reo Māori as, you know, the benefits of bilingualism and taking on te reo Māori as a second language. I mean, years ago it was, oh, let's all our children learn Japanese or now Chinese because we're going to be trading with these people. 
uh, overseas, you know, mm -hmm. and people saying, well, what's the use or benefit in learning te reo? I think that's another part of the work that we need to get um, to, to really concentrate on. So I think the, the normalisation, and, and I do, uh, do recognise the work that's been done in the literature and in broadcasting and raising the profile of Māori and making that a little bit more normal. But we haven't, we've got a few other tasks ahead of us. And one of them is understanding the benefits of bilingualism, but also the getting over the um, propaganda that's been fed to us for generations around Māori not having a benefit, not, not being going to help you get a job, that it's not going to help you establish any kind of economic sustainability, um, that it won't help you travel overseas. I mean, there are a few words that come to mind that probably aren't appropriate to use in, in this um, context. But, you know, Hemi and I have travelled overseas and, and to incredible places with te reo, with other people revitalising languages across the world. But literally, the world has been opened up to me because of my language and my work within it. My children have seen this. And I got to take them to Taiwan and work with the indigenous people in Taiwan around immersion education. I had, to, I had my children, so I had to take them with me. And they got to, they, they got to travel around these amazing people and hear the beauty of those languages, where Māori originally uh, comes from. Mm. Uh, that's, who has that kind of opportunity to go to these incredible places? Well, the language took them there. You know, so I think, you know, we need to get over this hang-up that we have that, um, that you don't have benefits, well, benefits won't come to you if, it's, um, if you learn a language that's not spoken anywhere else in the world. Is it part of our cultural fringe as New Zealanders, you know, that, that old thing that, you know, um, you oh. know, we're always worried what people think of us and, and think, you know, we're nothing in the big, big world. But oh, we're growing up from that, aren't we? I do think there's a part of that. I, but I actually think we, we need to acknowledge, and I come back to what Miriam said before, we need to teach our history in our schools. Mm. Once you start looking at the history, um, and actually you can look at the history of Ireland and Scotland and Wales and almost come up with exactly word for word what the education policies were at that, in those places at across the time of our, our colonial history, and the same strategies were used time and time again to debase and minimise the, the value of the Indigenous languages. And we haven't addressed that history, mm. so we still kind of have this hang-up of belief that's not actually that accurate. We need to actually deal with that propaganda so that we can understand the, the benefits. My son is learning um, Japanese now. He's, you know, he's the fluent... He's bilingual Māori and English. He's learning Japanese. My daughter's learning Spanish. You can still learn the languages of the world <laughs> and do it from a, a strong base of bi bilingualism and biculturalism. Mm -hmm. Now, um, we should talk a bit about books. You've all written books um, in Māori or about Māori. Um, perhaps we'll start with you, Miriama. Um, can you tell us a bit more about this wonderful book and what the idea behind it was? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So... Um, Oh, we'll just we'll quickly just say something about that last point, though, which is that, that I mean, the harsh rea economic reality in New Zealand is that we, you know, the world is changing and, and jobs are changing. And I think, I really believe 100% that if you have te reo Māori, um, you'll, you'll have job security going forward. The Māori economy, there's a lot of talk about it being worth $50 billion, you know. Um, and there's a lot of understanding now in the corporate world um, and government that... Um, what Māori bring to the table um, doesn't just have nice effects and we can all unite and be harmonious. Um, it Actually, there is a very good economic um, reason why you would get involved too. And, and I say to my son all the time, he's going to university next year, 
study te reo. Do your Māori studies, um, do your law as well, because um, as a Pākehā boy, he's my whāngai, um, if you can kōrero Māori and, um, and have the law and your other skills that you'll learn at university, you'll always have job security. The world will change around you, but you'll, you'll be okay. So that, but anyway, to the book, to the book. <laughs> so The Stolen Stars of Matariki. So um, that's a, it's a book for three to seven-year-olds. And uh, I, was, um, I was talking to a, a publishing friend last year and said, I've got this... I've got this book that I'd love to um, publish and I'm too shy and I don't know where to start. And he said, why don't you go and talk to Scholastic? Um, and so I went and spoke to um, Lynne Evans, who's absolutely lovely. I sent my book in and they, she sent a beautiful rejection letter. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, not for us. Um, I'd actually written it 10 years previously. And funnily enough, she said, and I hadn't told her that, but funnily enough, she said, maybe if it came to us about 10 years ago, it would have been good, but not now. Um, and she said, but you know what, I, we've got Matariki coming up next year and we'd really love to have, because um, every year they do a Matariki book, and we'd love to invite you to um, write this one for us. And so um, the book is set at um, Te Matahapoku at Birdlings Flat, which is where my whānau has had a place for generations and my parents live there still. Uh, and so I have immortalised my whānau in there. So it's got Grandma and Poa, who are my parents, and it's got my two children, Sam and Te Rerehua. And, um, and out there, there's a really strong tradition of um, mahika kai, of gathering kai. So um, eeling is a huge thing out there. And so that's what the kids do with the grandparents. And, um, and then they discover that two of the stars in the Matarihi cluster have been stolen. And that brings them um, into some um, hijinks with Patsupairehe. So um, that's basic idea of the story. Um, and Scholastic was fantastic. Um, immediately said, um, we want to do this itereo as well. And so Maireo was not good enough. Um, and so we got uh, Naide Roberts to be the translator for it, and she did a beautiful job. So I'm, you know, it's really thrilled to see um, that it's adding to the the, the smallish um, but growing canon of um, Māori literature that we have. And are we, do we expect any more? Yeah, so um, I really enjoyed doing that book, and so um, and I'm, I'm if I was to, you know, re imagine myself going forward. I would love to be a writer. I'd love to call myself a writer rather than a broadcaster. Um, and it was funny when I got my lanyard for the festival, it's got Miriam McCumble writer on it. And I was like, oh, oh my God, I'm a writer. <laughs> so yes, there are other books coming. Um, and I was, I was talking to these guys before about a project that um, my husband and I are working on with um, uh, a board of trustees, uh, Kotahiro Puka Puka, which is a dream is to um, publish a uh, hundred books, itereo, um, uh, contemporary and classic works. So there's um, there's a really big gap between so the baby books and the Bible, and so we want to fill the gap in between, so that it means that learners like us um, and students have got um, books that they can read. That are, you know, Harry Potter um, or uh, Catherine Mansfield, or you know, just have basically build a canon of Māori literature that we can all draw on. And we kind of hope too that it might end up meaning that we have um, translation courses at universities um, so that it can help sort of build capacity across the board. So that, that's our dream and it, it's, it's tracking to be launched in the new year. So mm. yeah, fingers crossed. Fantastic. Perhaps Hemi, you could tell us a bit um, about where the idea for your book, A Māori Word A Day, came from. Yeah, um, just bouncing off Miriam's kōrero about translation. So this book came out of a translation project that I worked on with Witsi Humaira um, 
we trans well, I translated his book Sleep Standing into Māori, which was published with Pingham Random House in 2017. Um, and that story was about uh, the Orako War, land war in 1864, and about a young boy called Moitu who travelled with his uh, iwi to, uh, to Orako. Uh, and so after we published that, Penguin came back with an idea to, to do this book, A Māori Word A Day, and it literally is A Māori Word A Day. There's not too much to say. But I suppose in terms of what makes it different uh, to any other dictionary out there, it's um, a collection of words that we all use, that I think we, we, we all use in our daily interactions. Uh, so it's for anybody, regardless of where they're at in their journey uh, in learning te reo Māori, someone can pick it up. And, and turn to a page and, and see a word there, see the definition, see some sample sentences and also some other interesting facts in there as well about some of these words that we're using. So I suppose one of the key motivators was to fill, fill that gap again in the lack of resources, accessible resources for people wanting to learn the reo and people who, who speak the reo. Uh, and then also including some uh, new, new terms and new words that are starting to to appear in our language at the moment. So there are some resources out there at the moment, but we need to update some of those resources. Uh, and there's also a great demand. So there's a lot of people wanting more resources. And so we're starting to see more books um, be published. And I suppose the success of those books, like Scotty and Stacey Morrison's books, mm -hmm. is a testament to that demand. They're doing really well, yeah. And do you have further um, book ideas? Māori word a day, I suppose the follow-on would be a Māori Phrase a day. <laughs> <laughs> and no more translation work, though. That, that must have been a big job. Yeah, yeah, that was a big job. I, I, I'm a licensed translator, and, and that's a lot of my work is based in translation. And um, next to teaching, that's, that's what I do. I translate. Um, but most of the work I translate is boring formal documents. Um, so that was really exciting to work on a project like this. And I look forward to this project. This is really exciting um, to have hundred books that are going to be translated into Māori for learners and speakers of Te Reo Māori to access. Calling me to him, so yeah, <laughs> to be our translators. Mm. And Hannah, you've already um, you've also written a lot of children's books in Māori in the past, and also poetry in Te Reo Māori. We don't have any of those books available here, um, unfortunately. But um, can you tell us a bit about what got you into writing in Te Reo Māori? Well, the Children's books were really, that came from a need, uh, and it was actually a relationship with Hana Pomari up in Wellington, and at the time, using um, learning media as a, as a platform to publish books around our stories that had been absent from the literature. Uh, and so we targeted the we targeted Kura Kaupapa and Farikura aged children, and wanted to wanted to ensure that some of those Kaitahu stories, our traditions, the legends and histories of the, this place were available to to our children. And so we did the wars, we did um, the battles between Katitoa and Kaitahu, we, uh, the history of the glaciers and how the island got formed, and the arrival of Rakaihotu to this land. Uh, and so that was our big project. It was, we need to get the, we need to make sure that this information is available to our kids. And we tried doing, writing them in, uh, in different ways as well, using a more teatea or a, um, more of a poetry uh, approach to writing those histories rather than uh, writing it in a, in a more historical text. 
Um, so, yeah, we, we tried a lot of things as we went along. Uh, but that, that once we did that, that was kind of, right, we've done that now. We um, can move on. And it was actually the, the poetry book, Kupu, that you referred to, was another, is an anthology of modern Māori poetry that uh, Charisma and I, again, were challenged to write by our language mentors, uh, Timuti Karetu and um, Farihuya Milroy. Uh, they challenged us at the end of our, a course that we did, Te Pane Kiritanga, um, and they said, right, you really need to see, take the language to somewhere that it hasn't gone before for you and your people of Kaitahu. And when we had a look at what was available to us, we have a lot of old text in Māori uh, that our tūpuna wrote. Uh, they were prolific writers, and that's something to be really proud of. But then there was this huge gap of... There, there, an absence, other than the stuff for the claim, there was an absence of written literature in Te Reo. So we thought, well, you know, people are composing songs and whatnot all the time. How about we try to write poems? And when I say try, I mean try. Um, <laughs> but the good thing was that we didn't have too many people in our tribe who could speak Māori to, <laughs> to critique. So, we, you know, we had this kind of sense of confidence and we made an, an effort to have uh, 100 poems. So we wrote 100 poems in Te Reo. And then we sent this to uh, Timoti Karetu to write a forward and to edit for us. And he said, right, where's the English? He said, oh, no, no, no. No, we can't. <laughs> we, we came up with all these excuses as to why we weren't going to give translation for the poems. He said, well, how the hell are you meant to, is your, are your people going to understand what you're saying if you don't provide the option of, um, in, in English as well? So that actually took us a long time because we did not rate ourselves as poets. It was okay in Māori, we're okay with that, but in English it was another whole, we didn't, we didn't feel quite the same sense of confidence. Um, and so we thought, well, if we're going to put it out there, uh, we need to make sure that it's not going to be completely torn up on day one. So we, in, we asked uh, Witi Himaida as well if he would uh, give some reflection on our English. Mm. We didn't expect to get it back within a couple of years, but he actually was uh, very complimentary, I think. He's a loving man, <laughs> very generous man. Um, and he wrote the forward for uh, in English for, for that anthology as well. So, you know, we, we still don't rate ourselves as poets. We wouldn't necessarily, but we love writing and we loved being able to celebrate the Māori word and English alongside of it in a way which was new to show our people that Te Reo has a place in all sorts of forum. We don't have to... We don't have to conform to what was uh, and, and a, an understanding of this is what Te Reo Māori is like in, in song or in prose. We, we can actually try new things. So my next, uh, if I'm going to, uh, in between time, I tended to write chapters for books mm. and it tends to be on the journey of language revitalisation uh, and both here in New Zealand and overseas. Uh, but I the passion for writing more creatively uh, is where, uh, when I get a bit of time, maybe a few less broken limbs in the family and a few <laughs> other things, uh, my dream would be to actually uh, to, to dedicate some time to, again, being creative and, and being inspired by the beauty of the language and having a play. I want to have a play again. Um, so the title of the session is Embracing Te Reo. Hear me. How do we go about continuing to embrace Te Reo as we move forward? I think, like I said before, we just need to continue creating, making people aware that this space is a welcoming space and it, it's, it's, it's for everyone, Te Reo Māori. Uh, I think 
with a lot of our strategies that, that are in place at the moment, the focus is on um, te reo Māori in the education system and, and in the home. Uh, I think there needs to be a, a greater focus on uh, te reo Māori in the street and, and socialising te reo Māori. And, and by socialising te reo Māori, I mean uh, using kia ora or a word here or there, a word a day, here or there, <laughs> uh, a, a greeting, a farewell um, in our everyday interactions in the home, in the workplace, in the street. And in doing that, we start to normalise te reo Māori and standardise te reo Māori, which is what Hannah's been talking about. And, and everyone can do that. We all know how to say kia ora, but it's just, it's doing it. And if we all start to do that, we're starting to embrace te reo Māori. And as a result, result of that, we start to normalise te reo Māori and make it okay. It's, it doesn't, it's not a strange thing anymore. It's, it's a very normal thing. So that's something, I mean, if we all want to embrace the real Māori, that's something we can all do leaving this building today is, is, is do that. We can start socialising the real Māori and that's using it in our everyday interactions, what we know. One of the things when we had the earthquakes here I thought was quite interesting was that the sort of phrase that came out to sort of indicate support with us here in Christchurch with the earthquakes was Kia Kaha Christchurch. And I don't know where that was generated from, but I mean, I saw it as graffiti on the sides of buildings and and so on, and that became, you know, so those are examples, aren't they, where mm. often you can turn to te reo and it becomes part of it. Mm. What, what about in the broadcasting sector, Miriam? Uh, well, yeah, as, as I say, we, we, we're still, we're working on it. Um, we're making some changes in TVNZ, for example. Um, so we're coming up with a Māori strategy, um, how to get more Māori working in mainstream. Um, so what I've found over the years is, is trying to get young journalists to consider mainstream, young Māori journalists, it can be a little bit of a struggle because they worry that they'll be isolated and, and alienated. And I can certainly say as, um, you know, somebody who, was, who did feel like that early in my career that that, that is um, still a reality but not quite the same as it was for me. Um, I think beyond broadcasting we have an issue with teaching. Um, and we know, you know, we've had uh, the teacher strikes recently. Well, you know, if, if you think it's bad, in general teaching, with people leaving the profession or not being able to get the right people in place, um, double it, triple it for te reo. So we really struggle to get te reo teachers. Um, at our school, um, we lost a teacher, one of our very good teachers, to, um, to a charter school, and, um, which was wonderful for him, and it was a really good move for him to make. But it left a vacuum for us, which we still have not been able to fill. Um, and we've been scouring the country trying, trying to find somebody to come and it's been six months now. Um, and we know, you know, every time I talk to, um, to other teachers and say, have you got any one, they all go, no, don't come near us. <laughs> We're not giving you our teachers. Um, because, uh, you know, it's very difficult to find very good teachers i te reo. And so we need to create a teaching environment um, in the general population of teaching which attracts people to it. Once we've got that sorted, and Lord knows how we're going to do that, but we're, obviously we need to look at pay and the things that the teachers are concerned about. Uh, once we do that, we, you know, we need to create the supply lines um, for te reo teaching. Um, and that means that all teachers, in my view, should be learning how to at least um, be able to teach basic te reo. Um, and, and create an environment where people want to come, number one, to teach, and number two, to look at, um, at uh, teaching te reo. Are we at this stage, I know this is a perennial question, um, for te reo be, to be compulsory in schools? 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there's a really, and I, I don't know how you guys feel about it, because in Māori gym, I know there's a big gap between those of us who think yes and those of us who think no. My view is yes, but a graduated approach. We can't do it now because, as I just said, we don't have the supply. We don't have the teachers to make it compulsory tomorrow. But we need, in my view, we need that to be the goal that we get to compulsion. And I don't, you know, we need a plan. I don't know what the plan is. Look, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, it needs to be uh, staggered because of the shortage of teachers. But then if we made it, the, the, you know, it's chicken and egg. If we actually made it compulsory, we'll probably produce more teachers in a comparatively short <laughs> yeah. period of time too. Uh, you know, I, I don't, we, we have compulsion around science and English and maths. And if we really are, uh, if we're true to ourselves and, and that understanding about the benefits of bilingualism, we're actually doing a disservice to our children, I believe, if we don't, uh, you know, put a stake in the ground and say that, that it should be compulsory. I mean, I, I don't think it's a negative thing. If you value it, if you see it as something that can <coughs> offer huge benefit to the lives of our, of our children and our community, then it's not... Compulsion doesn't have to be negative. It can be positive, because even though we don't generally as a country like being told what to do, if you see it as something that's going to give you value um, for the rest of your life. But, you know, you, you asked a question about embracing Pedal. Uh, there are so many exemplars. And I'd just like to do a shout out for Air New Zealand, who I can get quite emotional now on a plane. When I, yesterday, arriving in Christchurch, no mai ki o tautahi, mihi o te rā, thinking, Whoa, that is just fantastic. If you want an example of how a business can embrace Tadell, you've got it right there. They started with Kiora. They started with a word a day, and then they extended to Matewa, and then they extended to pronouncing the names of the places correctly. Or our local um, Anton Matthews with Fush, you know, he taking Tadell into his cafe, into his restaurant bilingual menus, those kind of things. That's, that's how people can embrace it and really yeah. celebrate it. And so, yes, compulsory to, compulsory to Dell, uh, but coming from a place that understands it, the love for the language, the benefit of it, the value of it, and uh, the fact that if we don't, I, it, it can be actually a disservice we do to another generation. I mean, part of the difficulty, though, is that people have said, well, that's all very well, but we don't have the teachers, and you've uh, addressed that. But another one is, well, look what happened in Ireland. They made it compulsory, and that didn't work at all. So do you have any response about that? Um, do you think... I mean, Regan. I suppose the thing yeah, is... Regan and me save uh, <laughs> the that's Irish. That's the way to kill it. <laughs> no, um, I was lucky enough to um, travel to Ireland last year, uh, and look, work with some of the indigenous, um, the people who are uh, revitalizing the Gaelic languages. Uh, and I've heard, I've heard the argument. And there's certainly different lessons we can learn from around the globe as to how to make a language compulsory. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be right across every domain. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't agree with the fact that it's actually killed it there. I think there are other factors that have come into play that have, uh, that have imposed upon the perceptions of the value of that language. And I see, I, I, I witness the, the Gaelic immersion schools and the strength and the passion of the language within those communities and, and have to say, um, I think it's actually strong. It's not been, it hasn't necessarily been something right across the board that has killed it. 
But we do have to realize that when you are on a it's like you, it takes a very short period of time to demolish a house. It takes a lot longer to build another. Christchurch knows this. <laughs> and that's without EQC even in the room. We know that it takes longer to reconstruct something that has been destroyed. Well, you know, revitalizing languages are no different. In fact, it takes, what's our dictate? One generation to kill a language and three generations to get it back. So we've got to be in for the long haul. And we might trial some policies, some public policies that may not give the kind of rewards we want in the time we want to see them. Doesn't mean that the end goal of having that house, of having that city rebuilt again, that we should turn away from that because look at this place. Look at where we're sitting today. We know when we put our minds together and we go through those obstacles and we get over them that we're left with beautiful architecture, beautiful surroundings. And yes, it's taking a while, but it's worth it. And the same goes for language revitalization. Don't get disappointed at the first hurdle <laughs> or the first pit hole or the first roadblock <laughs> um, to, you know, to stretch that analogy out a little bit longer. Just keep your, keep your vision clearly set on what that end goal is. And, you know, remember that, it, you know, good things do take time, but it's worth it. It's worth it in Ireland. It's worth it in Wales. It's worth it with the Basque. It's worth it in Taiwan. It's worth it in Australia. In Aotearoa, we are so worth it. <laughs> and humble, but so worth it. <laughs> so, just every single sign that they have, all their um, travel information for trams and ferries and all the rest of it, they're all in both languages. It's amazing. And it's a very simple but significant move that they've made. Yeah. The other thing in Ireland is the Celtics, which are really fascinating. Where you go to these villages, these small towns where everything is in Gaelic. So, the signs and the bank and the shops and everyone speaks Gaelic. I mean, that's, I'd love to see that here in Aotearoa, yeah. Fantastic. Um, I think perhaps we could open up for questions from the audience. Now, I think we have a couple of roving microphones. So um, the instructions are to wait till you've got a microphone into your hand before you ask questions. So can people who have got a question, please put up their hands and we'll, there's someone down the front. I hear someone there. Um, thank you all for your wonderful uh, talk this morning. I just wanted to, one very encouraging sign of the, the wave, of the new wave. I have a three-year-old granddaughter in, in Auckland and she's at a commercial daycare centre. Um, Every now and then she breaks into spontaneously into a little waiata. And if you ask her to do it, she, she can't remember. She doesn't know any. But something's happened. They, they sing so many there that, you know, even though she doesn't know she's learning to lay or she is from a source where there's no particular emphasis. You know, it's quite a typical Auckland multicultural sort of a daycare centre. Um, my other sort of question, comment is, it's quite difficult to go from being a beginner in Māori to becoming more fluent. And um, where I live in Otaki, there's quite a group of us who have kind of got so far. And 
it's really, really hard unless you go and enrol in some long immersion course. Um, yeah, so that's just, in my experience, and I've been trying to learn for probably 15 years, um, it's just so hard to get to that point where you're fluent and you can, I mean, you can whakarongo, understand mohio, but it's very, very hard to kōrero fluently with others. So every now and then an inspiring teacher comes along for a year or two and we all get some more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But um, there's a there's just a big gap there, another big gap, I suppose. Mm. I think because our, our reo is a minoritized language, we have to, as learners of Te Reo Māori, and I'm a second language learner, and you you would understand this as you've been learning for 15 years. We have to make uh, such a huge effort to expose ourselves to Te Reo and do it in any way possible, whether it be through buying Māori music from iTunes or um, accessing podcasts on the internet, uh, meeting other people who are at the same same place and maintaining a connection with them uh, and, and communicating through text or over the phone because in our immediate community, in our immediate whanau, we might not have anybody. So we really have to make that extra effort to, to uh, be exposed to the, the real and have a space to practice and use our real. Mm. I, I support that. We... It's a bit of a contradiction because here I am saying, let's normalise the real, but then you actually have to be really deliberate and planned. (laughs) Um, And I know for when I was uh, raising my children, as a second language learner myself, I I started learning at high school, but I wanted to raise my children with Māori as their first language. Well, we lived out on the east, uh, east of Christchurch, and I would go to Countdown in town because I knew one person who spoke Māori in Countdown. I went, to a, um, went out to St Albans because there was a hairdresser that spoke Māori in St Albans. I'd go all over town to try and find this normal, <laughs> the normal um, exemplars of te reo. But you had to do, make that extra effort to be around other language speakers so that my children saw Yes, that, that the language is in these other places. And, and like Hemi was saying, they thought that my car only played Māori music until I made the mistake of leaving a Beyonce CD in there one day. Um, they thought that television, at, um, when they were little, only had either the Animal Planet or Māori TV. Um, so you have to try and construct a, a language environment. But I would say for, you know, I learnt Thai um, living in Thailand as an exchange student. And I picked up Thai, uh, the the amount within three months, I had picked up as much as I'd learned in four years in te reo in classes. So I hear you. I know it's a hard journey and a long journey. But when we can get to that utopia that Hemi was talking about in these villages in Ireland and and other parts of the world where it is more common, because of the work that you're doing and your granddaughter, that we will create an environment where it is more, you know, it's more easily accessible around us. And then that journey is going, the journey time to get to fluency is going to come down and down and down. Uh, And yes, it might be a couple of generations and you might have to go and look out for those inspiring language teachers and make that, uh, you know, take those hard steps now. But the work that you are doing now for your family, the modelling you are doing for your granddaughter is going to mean that her journey is going to be so much more rewarding and easier. So I just want to mihi to you, even the way you just started mm. that corridor, I want to mihi to you for the journey you have taken because that is the exemplar we need to be promoting and celebrating to the stars of Matariki. 
um, the thing that I could add to that is that I'm still learning as well. And so I, you know, I was um, born to my marae. You know, I grew up here going to Kapahaka all the time at um, Rehua Marae and now my uh, marae at Rapaki. And so, you know, I grew up with the Ao Māori, but um, the focus when I was growing up was not on te reo. It was just, you just better turn up to all the hui and um, tangi and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I've been on a sort of a lifelong stop-start journey with my reo. And there's a lot of, I think, too, um, and this is particular for Māori, but I wonder if it also is the case for Pākehā, that there's a lot of emotional baggage with te reo as well. Um, and so for me, I think a lot of that, you know, that has sort of stopped my progression sometimes, like, oh, my God. And also being an A-type, I want to get it now, and if I can't get it now, then it's, you know, it's, it makes it all the harder to actually learn. So one of the things I've had to, to counsel myself to do is to drop those expectations and stop trying to be amazing straight away and just recognise that it's going to take time. It just is going to take time, and I, and I will get there. Um, I remember one of the things that really helped me, actually, was um, Dame Tariana Tsuria saying, uh, you know, she's a great leader in the Māori, in, in New Zealand, actually. And she said, uh, I just haven't been able to master the language. And that has been my burden, but I'm, I'm cool with that. I just haven't, I'm, I don't have a facility for language. And I thought, damn it, maybe I don't have a facility for language. <laughs> <laughs> but Keita Pai, because she's a great leader and, and we all look to her um, to be led. And so, um, so for me, it's a matter of dropping my expectation and recognising that I'm on a journey, I'll get there, it's going to go forward, sideways, this way, backwards sometimes and then forward, but I will get there, I just need to stick with it. And my big dream is to, I keep on saying, God, can't somebody just set up a house where I can go and live? Can't I just go and live in this house where everybody speaks to you? And then I'll have it, I'll have it in a couple of years. But you just gotta go with what's available. And and in doing that, build the capacity of what's available for everybody too. My grandmother was born in 1900 and Māori was not her first language. So her grandparents in the late 1800s were native speakers and at 1900, down in Bluff, um, hopefully everyone knows where Bluff is, they, um, they did not raise their child and their, their children with Te Reo as, as their first language. So it's hard. My father, like um, Dame Tariana, um, concentrated on other things. He tried to learn and he struggled. He learned as a second language learner um, to a certain level, but then he got caught up in the politics and, the, and driving uh, kaitahu politics. Well... He still promoted the language enough that I had the opportunity to go and learn it. And so my children, literally within 120 years, the first time that we've had first language speakers of Māori within our family. Now, 120 years is usually beyond our you know, scope um, when we think it, but we have to think intergenerationally. And you know, in a Māori context, 120 years is, oh, that's easy, we can do that. So think intergener intergenerationally. Uh, and like I said before, celebrate the fact that your granddaughter now has had the opportunities normalised um, that weren't necessarily available to you um, as a child. Well, I think we have another question here. Tēnā koutou i ngā manukura, ko tai mai ki te kōrero mai, ki te whakamārama mai, uh, ngā mehiki a koutou. Ko Tānia Gilchrist ahau, he uri no Ngāti Parau, um, e noho ana kei konei mo te nuinga o tōku uranga. Um, thank you for coming. It's been really exciting. Um, mahi to, um, to the kui. Um, ngā mihi mō tō pātai. Kia ora. Um, 
Um, and everything you just said sort of answered a whole lot of questions I had <laughs> as well. I'm here for that. Um, uh, but e pāna ki te um, compulsory te reo, um, I was wondering what your thoughts might be on the idea of te reo Māori being compulsory at teachers' college. So um, in order to graduate from teachers' college as a teacher in New Zealand, you have to have a proficiency in te reo. You have to have the ability to pronounce people's names right and names correctly and, um, and understand the history. Um, do you think that might go a long way to plugging some of the teaching gaps, but also yeah. developing a culture yeah. within our yeah. schools. At the, at, at the moment, so at AUT, some of, we work in the education school as well and with training teachers um, who are going out into our schools. And so the, there's a core component that they have to achieve as part of their degree. Uh, I think there's, there needs to be some things looked at in relation to that core component. Um, first off, it's done in the first year. So by the time these... Um, teachers graduate three years later, I think a lot of that knowledge may have, may have gone from here. Uh, when they get out into the school, it's sometimes, a lot of the time it's up to the individual teacher how much they want to implement in their own class. And then that goes back to how confident the individual is in the knowledge relating to te reo and, 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 and the culture aspect as well. So I think that needs to be reviewed. Uh, in terms of the content, it's, a, it's an overview. Yeah, the focus is on um, pronunciation, uh, a little bit of te reo, uh, greetings, farewells, numbers, songs. Uh, so it's a, a very uh, brief overview and then it's up to the individual to pursue te reo further if they, if they wish to and then how much they want to implement into their own classroom is up to them. A, a, a lot of the case, it depends on the school, but yeah. Tanya, the, the, there is a movement now to look at um, how it might be incorporated with the Teachers Council for things like teacher registration so that you can actually have an ongoing expectation to, up, you know, to, to maintain uh, language competency and then to identify what, ba what the minimum competencies might be required. So spot on, there is absolutely the, the place we need to do and not from a not from a position of trying to be hard on the teachers, but actually create the tools and the opportunities for them to be able to do what I believe most would really love to be able to do. So kia ora. Very selfishly, I'm doing an inquiry cycle on how to whakamana te reo me te kana Māori in um, my English classrooms. Uh, last year I did a survey of my students and 80% of them either were ambivalent or anti me using te reo Māori in the classroom. So this year I've decided to focus on going harder. And, um, uh, well but done. I'm going, well done. Uh, um, but I, but I, I'd like some advice, please. Yeah. Um, my Māori students are quite whakamā. Um, in their kapahaka, they're really, they're, they're awesome. But in class, they tend to be quiet. Um, what could you tell me that I could do more uh, in the classroom other than embarrassing them by going, by looking at them? There's one boy, I love it now, he asks me if he can go to the toilet in te reo Māori, so that saves him the embarrassment of the other kids knowing. But... Um, and your answers I'm going to write down and put in my um, <laughs> no feedback when I give it to my principal <laughs> next month. But, um, kia ora. I think 
think our teacher should answer this, but I just going to, you reminded me of um, Whaiatihi Puanaki. So she was my teacher at um, Aranui High School and she, her whole thing was just, she rolled by force and she'd be like, she'd say, I'll body slam you. <laughs> and, you <get> wrong. <laughs> and then she'd say, it's so funny hearing her voice as you were talking, I could hear her voice saying, anytime we started just a read, not want to do, you could hear her in the background going, handle it, handle it. <laughs> I don't advocate the teaching by force, but um, but there is something about just sort of compelling the kids to do the right thing. But anyway, these are the experts. Oh, look, first of all, just to me, to you for what you're, you know, for um, trying to reflect back to all your students what is part of our culture. Uh, and I, know, I understand that some people might get a bit hesitant around wanting Māori words incorporated into an English language class. Uh, but that's because we've grown up in New Zealand where, again, monoglots. We've been very, very um, monolingual in our focus and monocultural in our focus. Anywhere in the world, if you go into an English class, they don't ban other language, they don't ban other words. In fact, they use, they celebrate the, the moulding of um, languages together and within the context of the topic that, that's been discussed. So, of course, you should include Māori words and, of course, you should uh, promote Māori language within your English classes because it's around language and valuing language. I, I, I've had the experience um, just recently of somebody suggesting to me when their name was mispronounced by their English teacher um, and I was having a conversation with this child uh, and saying, you know, that's not your name. You really should make sure that um, your name is pronounced properly. It doesn't matter, um, you know, in the context. And this child said to me, um, well, e hara ia i te, e hara ia i te Māori, uh, ko he kaia ko reo pākeha ia. Um, they're not a Māori um, person, they're an English teacher. And I said, they're an English teacher in New Zealand. <laughs> um, this, is, this is home. Just because they're an English teacher doesn't mean that they should be, that they don't have any association with the language. And what you can do is try and encourage um, the English teacher uh, to embrace the beauty that is you, the beauty that is your language. So the fact that you're doing it, what I would say would be um, that you normalise it, you continue to normalise it and, and exemplify uh, the, not not necessarily in full Māori language, but give them the context. Always give them the translation. So start by taking out a bit of the fear when you're using Māori words by letting them know, Jack Tame does that in the morning. If you listen, he'll say, ko te hau, hau te karaka te wā. What I've just said is it's quarter past nine. Um, and so take the fear away by, again, giving them the indication, the, the, the meaning. Uh, and that, once you do that for a while, you can actually stop because they'll get it, they just understand it. Um, so continue to do it, but take the fear away from the fear of the unknown. Um, continue to do that even in terms of the visual displays in your, in your class. And if you're in English, there are multiple, um, lit, there's beautiful books, from, depending on the age that you're teaching. There's a lot of literature. You can look at Fano by Wittihimaira back in the day when I was in English class, we were, we were reading, um, Witty's books, and they're full of Māori words, Māori phrases. So again, using, being deliberate about the kind of resources that you're using within the English context can promote the language within, within the classroom. And the more that happens, I think the more 
uh, they'll see that, yeah, this is a valid place for our, for our language. So that's two, look at the resources you use. Visually, um, promote the language in its bilingual context within the English classroom and continue to exemplify the practice of it, but take away the fear by offering, at least at the beginning, uh, the English translations. Hear me? You've had, you've had time to think now, hear me? So the real answers are coming at you she now. She said it all, and I support everything <laughs> she said, and I just want to mihi again to you. And um, I think with all of that, continue doing it outside of the class as well. And because the, the, the tamariki, the rangatahi, will, will, will notice that. They'll notice that, oh, this is not only just happening in our class, but she's using te reo normally outside of the class in, in all of these different situations with different people. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Beautiful. I think we're really running out of time here. Have we got one for enough like really, really quick question? Oh. <laughs> It's wonderful to see you all and to hear you all, and I'd just like to thank you, Ka Ki Te Emanua, Engari Ka Poto Te Wā, Rera Ke Tene Te Pātoi o Te Kōrero. It's more of a statement than a question. I came back into education in 1997 with a desire to learn Te Reo Māori, and I started by going back to um, Kapahaka in, in the University of Canterbury and going to the Anglican Māori Church, where I was surrounded by the liturgy, the karakia, because I couldn't start my classes till the following year. I started at um, level one the following year. Ten years later, I accidentally did a PhD and ended up writing a book about Austin Best. My, my lawyer friend said to me at a meal one night, why are you learning that Stone Age language? It won't do you any good in this country. I didn't listen to him. So I would say everybody in this room is a change agent. Every person who has that, that, that Māori, Māori manua, go and do it. Even if you learn one Māori word a day, go and do a university course, whatever, 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 you know, um, it will change your life, it's changed my life, it's changed my brain, it's changed a lot of things. And I now feel like I'm dying in this country, feeling like I've done a little bit of good, and I don't feel really bad about sharing with Māori, who've been so generous to me, my whānau, my whole life. Tēnā koutou katoa. Um, unfortunately, I think we're going to wrap it up. I think we could probably stay here for a lot longer and, um, have, and I know there's some other questions and I'm really sorry that we couldn't get to them. Um, I think we've got Miriam and Hemi are going to be out there um, signing books, so I encourage you to go and buy their books and get them to sign and perhaps have some more chat out there. Um, so I'd like to thank you all for coming along today and um, please give a big round of applause to our speakers here today. Thank you.